right, here we go. We are back with another episode of Celluloid Jelly. I forgot the intro. It's been so long since we recorded, I forgot the intro. Uh, uh, it's a podcast where a couple of ex-video store guys blabble on about movies because, you know, we love it. Right? Yeah, hopefully we love it. Is that, is that, is that, the, is that close enough? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We're taking it easy this episode, I guess. Um, real, real quick before we get into this episode, um, I, I want to, I want to give a shout out because our most recent episode that we did, we recorded weeks ago and it was, uh, on Predator. And, uh, as I've been going through and, and kind of, it's not, as of right now, it's not published yet, but by the time this is out, obviously it will be. Um, but as I went through and listened, there are two things that we just completely, like skipped over and didn't talk about, uh, and, and I felt horrible afterwards. Um, and one was Alan Silvestri's music, which is terrific. Uh, and I'm gonna hold you responsible for that one. Yeah, and the other one is Stan Winston's fucking creature design for the Predator. <laughs> we didn't talk about that at all. So, swept up in so many other good aspects of the film, though, I guess. So I'll, I, will, I will take the blame for that. But, of course, um, you know, those are two very important reasons why that movie is as successful and works the way that it does. And, you know, especially uh, Winston's work, uh, the Predator design, and the, uh, the actual uh, costume that is worn in the movie uh, is just terrific. Um, it's, it's one of the most iconic movie uh creatures you know of all time as far as like you know one of the greatest creations that we've seen on screen so um so shame on us but uh there you go you got it you got it in episode whatever two don't let it it get yourself too bad you know it's uh it's only an hour-long podcast we could probably talk about the predator for a few hours i remember (laughs) maybe you can reiterate um, since you've been rec- since you've been doing some editing, but I felt like that was a very energetic recording. So yeah, well, I'll tell you what I couldn't talk about for two hours is um, Shane Black's The Predator, which sucked. <laughs> <Whoops>. <laughs> so we won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> um, but hey, uh, you know, so back back to to tape to did back to today's business. Uh, what have you been watching, Cesar? What do you want to recommend to the kids at home? To be completely honest, I really have been haven't been watching that much. There's a lot of stuff going on in real life. Yeah. Uh, but earlier today, I watched. Um, I woke up early, inexplicably, earlier than typical, and I chose to watch uh, Hana, Joe Wright's film from 2011. I love Hana. Yeah, uh, pretty big fan of it. Um, you know, for people who've never seen it, um, it stars uh, Shursa Ronan. Um, Kate Blanchett and Eric Bana. Um, uh, Ronan plays a, a young girl who's been raised in the wilderness by her father, played by Eric Bana, um, who is being pursued by Kate Blanchett, who is um, a senior CIA agent um, who, for some reason, has had t- has ties to to both of them. Um, the movie takes place mostly in Europe. Um, features a musical score by uh, the Chemical Brothers, which is excellent. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's a very energetic and kind of like it, very interesting quasi science fiction film. Um, but I, I like the film quite a bit. It's probably been a while since I have watched it last, but it's always a, a pretty enjoyable watch when I do. Yeah, I like that movie a lot. It's got uh, it's got great energy, um, you know, in, in part because of that music. But uh, Joe Wright is a fantastic filmmaker. Um, and uh, I don't know if you saw his most recent movie, Darkest Hour. Uh, no, not uh, yet. Yeah, that that was the Gary Oldman, Winston Churchill movie, and uh, I man, I really liked it a lot. Uh, brilliantly shot. Um, I tend to like his films a lot too. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that or or Pan. I think, which I guess are uh, two. I did not like Pan. Um, Pan Pan was definitely a misfire in my book. Um, but uh, you know, he he's he's got more hits than misses. And he takes yeah. chances. That's what I like about him as a filmmaker. Right? You know, he's very bold. Well, I still want to check it out, though. Maybe 
the, the movie feels pretty, if I remember, the running time for Pan is pretty long. So, uh, you know, considering, like, it's kind of like tepid reception from a lot of people whose opinions I trust about movies, yeah, I'm not necessarily in a hurry to watch it either. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, anything else? Um, no, to be honest, I probably haven't watched a movie, aside from rewatching uh, our topic for today, uh, in over a week or two. So The I'm deuce, pretty, you say? Pretty, pretty deprived, I guess. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, yeah, uh, well, I mean, obviously, since we haven't talked in, uh, in a few weeks... I've seen uh, a number of movies, uh, a number of very good movies, a couple of not-so-good movies, but I'm just going to go with the most recent movie that, that I watched, and that was, uh, theatrically, uh, we saw White Boy Rick, um, which is, uh, you know, based on the true story of a young Detroiter um, who is a low-level hood who kind of um, becomes a police and FBI informant and... Uh, they call him a drug kingpin, but that's one of my problems with the movie is that they never really show that he has any actual power. He seems very low level the whole movie to me. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's Matthew McConaughey and, um, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, Roy Cochran is one of the cops, uh, and, uh, young, uh, Richie Merritt, uh, plays the, the title character of White Boy Rick, um, and, the performances in the movie are are really solid. Uh, I like the movie a lot um, in that regard. Uh, it's well shot. I like some of the sound design. Uh, but I like as I was watching it, I felt like curiously uninvolved in what was going on. It just didn't seem that compelling to me. And afterwards, I, th I think I could just kind of realized why because <laughs> the basic story is that you know you got this low level white hood who sort of, like, goes to work for this low-level black hood in Detroit uh, who sells drugs. That guy gets pinched and tossed in jail, and then the low-level white hood kind of, like, takes over, and, uh, and then he gets pinched and tossed in jail, and then the movie expects you to feel, like, sympathy for him because he's a victim of his circumstances. And, like, I, I was just kind of felt like that was a very hypocritical approach you know <laughs> like feel sorry for the white hood but not the black hood because you know he's got he's got a bad family life like fuck you white boy rick <laughs> he deserved to go to jail <laughs> no, but he's, he's a rat though yeah but we'll uh, seriously, the performances are really, really good. If you have any interest in seeing the movie, you know, I, I'd recommend it based on the performances alone, but I, I don't think it's a great movie. I, th I think three weeks from now, I'm going to have a lot of trouble remembering specifics because it's just, it just doesn't stick, you know, to yeah. you. So, um, but you still might get, uh, a, a little bit of a spotlight thrown on it during awards time, you know, if, uh. It, depending on how strong the rest of the year is, you know, you might see Matthew McConaughey get a nominee, uh, a nomination for something, or you might see, you know, uh, Richie Merritt on the circuit, you know, for, for being a, a first time, you know, movie star. So anyway, we're not here to talk about that. Oh yeah. We're not here to talk about what Boy Rick. No. Oh, curiously though, uh, you probably knew this. Um, but, uh, the, the guy who plays white boy, Rick, um, did not have any acting experience, but do you know where he's from? Dundalk. Yes. Dundalk high school. So for those of you in Baltimore, uh, you know, and many of our listeners are, are, are in that area. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the Dundalk area, pride of Dundalk, Richie Merritt. Is he related to like Merritt Boulevard? <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know if he's got that kind of pool. I think yeah, he changed probably. his, I actually, I think Merritt is a stage name. I think they changed his name. So they might've gotten it from Merritt Boulevard. Who knows? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. Too. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I guess the movie we're talking about this week is the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. 
Um, now, this is a movie we've been trying to get recorded for quite a while, um, and for you know any number of reasons, it's we've had a difficult time doing it, personal things, and just timing, I guess. Um, but this is um, one of those kind of cult 80s films that I kind of feel divides a lot of people. Um, personally, for me, it's not a movie I'd ever really seen um, anywhere near to its original release. To be honest, I think the first time I watched it was probably about three or four years ago, so very recently myself. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, I also watched it very late, though. I did not see it in 1984. Um, I saw it probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, after I started working at Suncoast. Yeah. Uh, Is there any reason, what made you um, watch this film? Was it just uh, people suggesting it to you, or just curiosity on the VHS cover or what? Uh, I think I caught it on like the sci-fi channel or something like that. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. To be honest though, like from what I understand, this movie had kind of jumped around in terms of ownership for a number of years. So I I can't say I've seen this movie on television anytime recently, but I guess it was probably much more prevalent when the sci-fi channel was still pretty new in the 90s. Huh? Yeah, maybe. I don't I, I honestly I I don't remember. I like I know I had seen it on TV somehow. Um, you know, like I don't think I even sat and watched the whole thing. I think I saw bits and pieces and uh and I think I had watched it with a friend on DVD after that. Um but it, yeah, it's it's it is you're right. It's one of those like perfect like cult 80s movies um in the true sense of the word you know a lot a lot of like cult 80s films became like mainstream successes and now are getting like remakes and sequels and things like that and this is this is one of those movies that's a cult movie for a reason and uh you know i mean just jump in there real quick and just say you know like this this movie has uh a lot of weird ideas um, a lot of crazy shit going on in it, and um, crazy the word. Yeah. yeah, and but it's I, I like I don't feel like it's a good movie, uh, although I am entertained by it. Okay. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with and and um, I watched this on Amazon Prime. Uh, how did you watch it? Oh, you know I. I picked up uh, the Shout Factory Blu-ray that came out a few years ago. Okay, yeah. So I, I guess that's what I was getting at because, uh, like, you had um, access to a bunch of special features and stuff, and I did not. So I, like, I, I really just kind of watched the movie, and of course, you know, like I looked on Wikipedia and the IMDb or whatever, you know, a little bit here or there. Um, but I, I guess my understanding of like the development of this movie is that the writer. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think his name is Earl Mac Roush, um, had done, I had tried to get this made into a movie quite a few times, and it didn't happen, um, and, but he he kind of started like 30 or 40 different versions of the script, like, you know, with different stories, and developed a lot of backstory for the characters, uh, especially Buckaroo Banzai, and you can kind of feel that in this movie. Like, uh, you know, apparently he never finished any of those screenplays. Like he'd get 30 or 40 pages in and then he'd kind of like give up on the idea and start a new screenplay yeah. um, featuring this character. So like in his brain, I guess it was very serialized, but like he had a lot of great ideas, but did not necessarily know how to craft it into like a great story. And like, I feel like this movie perfectly represents that because watching it there's so much depth to it almost like novel depth you know like like Stephen King detail you know in this movie uh and there's a lot of history alluded to outside the frame of the film but I think once you once you kind of like lock it down and look at the actual story of this movie it's really not that good (laughs) (laughs) this movie um certainly influenced by say um I guess like Doc Savage, yeah, yeah, amongst other things, yeah. um, a lot of other things, but like old school serials, we have a character, you know, like a Flash Gordon or Rocky Jones, kind of like, um, kind of leading the charge with like their group of characters. But this feels like, um, if you're looking at that, it'd be like, you know, out of a, a twelve chapter serial, 
maybe, you know, starting at like chapter six or so, you know? Yeah. Well, th- I like that about it. You kind of get thrown into something and you feel like there's a history and that you're, you're not really, it's not an origin story, you know, like we, we tend to get with like superhero characters these days. Um, it's kind of like, um, and you, obviously it's easy for me to go back to this cause you know, I'm a huge fan of star Wars, but like in the first original star Wars movie, you're just kind of thrown into this thing in the middle and they always allude to things that are happening outside of the frame that you're watching. Like, you know, when Darth Vader says to an Imperial officer, there'll be no one to stop us this time. And as a kid, you're like this time, wait, like, what happened last time? Like, why, why aren't you showing me what happened last time? You know, and it just keeps rolling and rolling. And I think, you know, they do a good job of that in this movie, too. Like, you just kind of, like, thrown in Meteor Ray. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to be said about, like, you know, connecting dots for yourself and leaving things unexplained. Uh, the mystery of, um, you know, of, like, this unknown history of these characters is pretty pretty compelling, I'd say. Yeah, someone like who reads a lot of comic books, like I do. I think the serialized nature of like this, this like chapter feels just like you know, like if you just picked up a random comic, you know, off like the newsstand or something. Yeah, definitely. Um, Did you happen to dig into those special features? uh, No, it's ridiculous what happened. (laughs) I watched the Blu-ray for it. Okay, uh, for the first time. The first time I watched it, like, you know, I, I alluded to, like, some earlier, like, troubles getting this recording done. Right. Um, and then it turns out my brother had taken the Blu-ray to watch with some friends. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have it. So when I rewatched it, which was just yesterday, uh, it was on Amazon Prime as well. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess the reason I asked was because apparently... You know, this movie begins with uh, with a very Star Wars style crawl, um, where they kind of just give you a little bit of backstory, and then they kind of throw you into um, the the two uh, scenes that kind of begin this film, which is Buckaroo Banzai as a surgeon um, helping New Jersey install, like, do some brain surgery, basically, on an Eskimo boy, um, and they cross cut that with. Um, the rest of the team and the government waiting at a test site for him to um, arrive and run the test with the the, the jet car, essentially. Um, but there was a different opening to this movie originally that was like home video footage that featured Jamie Lee Curtis as his mother. Okay. Uh, and that is on the Blu-ray. And I think it's on YouTube also. Um so and it's uh, uh, it's narrated by Clancy Brown, who plays Rawhide in the movie, yeah. and you, you get a little bit of sense. It's, it takes place in the 1950s, and Buckaroo Banzai is only like five years old or something like that, and you get to see his parents preparing their test of the overthruster, and it ends in tragedy uh, because the supervillain um, Hanoi Shan. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be an Asian dude. Um, <laughs> the super- well, half, well, you know, he's half Asian, maybe you know, because you know, Peter, Peter Weller, right? Right. Well, yeah, his father is Asian. His his mother was American. Yes. Um, and uh, but yeah, Hanoi Chan is. Um, I don't. I don't. Do they actually ever say his name in the movie? Um, I believe so. Like they, they. Um, I'm pretty sure they. I remember where, but I'm pretty sure they say otherwise I wouldn't know the name. Yeah, know? he's like the the Fu Manchu arch nemesis of of Buckaroo Banzai, and so he his men planted the bomb that killed his parents in the yes. in the um the alternate opening, and uh, and he's also featured later in the film when the two hunters. Uh, which is a horrible scene. It really is it's a horrible scene. But the two hunters who find the comic book, uh, and he's like, "Oh, it's you know the latest issue of Buckaroo Banzai." The character on the front is like an Asian guy, and it's Hanoi Chan, and that's the only glimpse we get of him in this movie. Uh, but he's the leader of the World Crime League, which is, you know, at the end of the film, we're promised a sequel that we never get. So like, I know broken promises. I know spaceballs too. Nice eighties. <laughs> 
But, like, you know, they, they reference, um, he's an arch nemesis, but, like, they reference uh, another villain. Um, I mean, we're, I guess this is just jumping right into it. But there's, um, I guess, like, uh, what's her face? Um, <laughs> um, Ellen. Um, Ellen Barkin? Like, uh, she, okay, we're just going to jump right into this. Yeah, again. do so, it, man, do it. So she is the um, twin sister of <laughs> Um, recently deceased wife. Well, we don't know how recently, but yeah. Uh, well, it seems like it was fairly recent because, like, they're talking. Well, this is my point. They reference that she was killed on an earlier adventure, um, but um, she was not killed by Han- by Hanoi. It was ki- she was killed by some other villain. I can't remember. I don't even recall what the name was. But uh, they mention it, like, I guess it's while she's, like, um, locked up, I guess, or so. Yeah. Once he realizes the um, the resemblance, I guess. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, it's it's totally crazy how they handle that revelation. It's such a weird bombshell to drop because they really just move on so quickly. Yeah. Like, well, you, because... I have to question it. Yeah. Well, when they first meet her... Um, and we can come back to that scene, obviously, because I, I guess we're going to probably talk about the, the the rock music and stuff in the film. But when we when we meet her, um, she says her name is Penny, and he says, "Did you say Peggy?" Which doesn't mean anything at all to an audience member right away. But we learn later that Peggy is his deceased wife, and then later in the jail cell, he says, "You remind me of somebody that I once knew a long time ago." And then even later, he explains, like, in full, the context of it. But in, in a way where they just, like, like he's just like, well, apparently you had a sister, and I married her. She's gone now, and that's all I've got to say about that. Like that and then they just move on because the Electroids are breaking into the Bonsai Institute. <laughs> so, like, I, just, it's, I really enjoy, like, those last two sentences <laughs> that came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> the Electroids are breaking into the Bonsai Institute. Uh-huh. That's the kind of that's the kind of wacky like world that this movie inhabits, uh, which is going to be right up some people's alley, and it's going to maybe even turn off a few other people, um, and then some people are going to be kind of in the middle. But um, but yeah, it's it's a bit like almost comically zany in parts. Um, which is well, weird. The, the movie kind of really plays it straight, so a lot of the humor is really deadpan. Um, when you, I mean, just if you consider the character of Bucker Banzai, he's kind of like a, like a virtuoso kind of like he's good at everything. Like, yeah. Uh, in the movie, you know, right in like the first ten minutes, they establish he's a neurosurgeon, a brilliant neurosurgeon. He's a scientist, you know. Yeah, he's, a, he's like a particle physicist, and yeah, he's a like a musician. You know, he knows martial arts. Right. And he's got, like, his other bandmates, uh, they're called the Hong Kong Cavaliers, you know, they're all, like, they're not specifically musicians, like, they're all other scientists who have different specialties, so they're, like, a super-equipped team for adventure. Right, exactly. So, you know, which is which is why it's such a huge deal at the beginning when he asks Jeff Goldblum's character, you know, have you ever thought about coming and, and, and joining my team full-time? It's like a huge honor for Jeff Goldblum, uh, who his name is is it is it Sidney Beckerman or si- something? But they call him New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. Um, and uh, I think Sidney Beckerman's actually the name of one of the producers in the movie. But it, his first name in the movie is definitely Sidney. Yeah. Because yeah, um, um, Buckaroo refers to him as Sidney, but everybody yeah. else calls him New Jersey. Uh huh. Um, he's great though. Um, some of some of Goldblum's reactions in the back of shots is sometimes when he's not even in focus fully, like just tickle me. I think he's hilarious. Yeah, well, he just really—it's like he really enjoys being there. I yeah. think. Well, I think the shooting of this film looks like it was a lot of fun. So I'm sure a lot of those Goldblum reactions are uh, probably fairly authentic. Yeah. Well, you know, I I, I heard. Um, I heard that the it was a troubled shoot, um, and that uh, there was a lot of pressure to get it done quickly. Um, and like apparently, the producer uh, and I don't have the name in front of me, but one of the producers uh, was very difficult 
and just in the like not even in the middle of the shoot but after a few weeks fired the cinematographer and hired a different one without asking uh wd richter the director of the film uh and at at one point they had they had forced wd richter to put his salary up against completion of the film uh so apparently it was a Maybe not on set with the actors, but the surrounding business related to the film was was sort of hostile uh, and uncomfortable for them making the movie. Okay. Um, if you look at the the film's kind of like, uh, well, the the movie it's a science fiction film, but it doesn't feel like sleek. Um, which I guess uh, traditionally science fiction films, you know, you look at something like Star Wars with sterile white rooms and things like that um uh at least for like the empire i guess but like there's like a grittiness like it's like a battered lived in sci-fi yeah it's it's very much uh the tatooine of star wars science fiction and there's um i guess like uh when you look at like the uh like the vehicles or you know um like towards the end of the film like i guess like the the base is uh you know the lactoid's base is um you know there's like all this technology, but it's just like random like cords and wires hanging off of the ceiling and like pipes and stuff. Yeah, it looks kind of like um, you know haphazard. It's not. It's not you know like the Federation from Star Trek or anything. So. Nah, yeah, it feels very much like um, like somebody's messing around in their garage with spare parts. Yeah, uh-huh. you know, like that that sort of science fiction. Um, yeah. Or maybe the perception of like you know early 90s, like, you know, hacker, you know, hacker bedrooms, I guess. Yeah. Well, a lot of the things that they work with in this movie, as far as, like, tech goes, um, you know, some of them are, like, have come to fruition. Like, at at one point, I think we see Reno with, like, a little, like, almost like a tablet that he's sort of, like, punching numbers into and getting, like, computing stuff from, um, which is obviously something we have now. There's a couple things like that throughout the movie that I think is, are pretty cool. Like they they sort of like you know predate our, our our reality in that way. Yeah. Well, I think like science fiction has a tendency to do that just in general, though. Like like the inspiration that what people have, you know, the dreams and like imagination um, will influence you know a whole generation of people in the future. Yeah. Even a movie as uh, cult as Bucker Banzai. So maybe one day we'll be able to drive through mountains. Yeah, hopefully so. I hope I see that in my lifetime. Uh, we'll see. So do you have a favorite Hong Kong Cavalier, a favorite character aside from Buckaroo? Well, Buckaroo probably... Uh, well, Jeff Goldblum, I'd say. <laughs> New Jersey. Yeah. Because he's, he's kind of like along for the ride. He doesn't, you know... He's, um, I guess like, this movie... Uh, as we said earlier, kind of like tosses you into it. He's the closest thing you have as like audience perspective uh, yeah. for the movie. So you, you tend to, you know, he gets, you tend to get swept away uh, along with uh, other Cavaliers. Uh, yeah. Just he, like, uh, he and Penny definitely serve that purpose to kind of yeah. like, you know, uh, give, give us a, an into the, the group of the, the, the main brain trust of, of Bonsai. Um, but like, you know, for him specifically, like I really, my favorite line of the movie is like, I guess there's a scene, um, midway when they're going, th- when I guess they're, they're at their base, um, the, the Cavaliers base and like, he's going through the room, going through like a, a lab and there's just like a watermelon, some kind of apparatus. <laughs> and like my favorite line of the movie is, you know, Goldblum's like, you know, what's that water, what's that watermelon doing there? And the Cavalier that he's with, I can't remember who it is. It's Reno. Reno, yeah. He says, um, you know, I'll tell you later. <laughs> and like, that's, like, I think a lot of this movie can be encapsulated into, like, that, you know, six-second piece. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is the type of movie that, like, the first time I watched it, like, I wasn't even sure what the hell was going on half the time. Like, you have to watch this movie more than once. Because there's just so much gobbledygook going on in the background. And a lot of the dialogue, um, you know, like there's the scene where Buckaroo Banzai is talking to the president, but in the background, Jeff Goldblum is discovering how the, like the blue lightning works 
and how Buckaroo is able to see the electroids, um, but the rest of them can't. And and how like the the sort of masking device that the electroids use to look human works. Uh-huh. And like, like you don't you don't always catch that stuff the first time around. So it's it, it's one like it's so rich in detail, um, and I I think that's one of the things I like about it. But I think upon first viewing, it was one of the things that I didn't care for. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of like a double edged sword. You know, this is not the type of movie I think that you can just watch once and be like, oh yeah, that was really awesome. You got to keep watching it and let it sort of. Um, you know, you've got to peel back the layers of it every time you you see it. Yeah, I think if you're the type of person who like you know, you know who enjoys it on your first viewing, and that like um, inspires you to have subsequent viewings afterwards, I think the movie itself tends to be fairly enriching. Surprisingly, you know, enriching in um, in what it does reveal. Yeah. Uh, but if you you know if you watch the film for the first time and you dislike it, um, you know. I think there's there's a certain element that you're going to be missing, but if you don't enjoy what you see initially, you're you're never going to care enough to to explore like the rest of this world. Yeah. So let me see if I get this right. So you correct me if I'm wrong here. So I'm, I did not write this down. I'm going to go through and I'm going to I'm going to give you basically like the plot of the movie. So <laughs> see, let's see, let's we're, play a little game. Let's see if I get it right. <laughs> so essentially. Uh, 30 years, or not 30 years prior, a long time ago, like in, in it, like in the 1930s, it was right when uh, when Doctor Hikita and uh, the John Lithgow character, who we haven't talked about yet, John Lithgow, is in a completely like different movie than the rest of these guys are. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's before World War Two, certainly. Yeah, so they. They try to develop their overthruster because the theory exists that, like, that there is a different dimension that they can travel through. So things go awry, and Dr. Lazardo, who is John Lithgow's character, gets stuck between the two dimensions and, as a result, becomes possessed by a different Lectroid called, uh, oh shit, John Warfin, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. So he is Lizardo, but sometimes he's not. Sometimes he's John Warfin. Yeah, like it's Warfin really like weird. Hide his head, so yeah, so but he he essentially goes to a home for the criminally insane, and the story moves on. Uh, so then uh, you know we have the alternate opening with Buckaroo's parents and Hanoi Chan's sabotaging their attempts to do the same thing, uh, and then of course we move forward to the the beginning of this film where Buckaroo Banzai successfully breaks through the eighth dimension. Um, and by doing so, uh, alerts the red electroids to the fact that he has a working overthruster. So the whole thing is that these red electroids want this overthruster from Buckaroo Banzai so that they can, and <laughs> so that they can essentially go back to the eighth dimension and get the other red electroids and then go back to planet 10, which is where they were from originally, and they were banished from there into the 8th dimension, which I'm guessing is like the Phantom Zone from Superman. It's like... <laughs> like, it, like this is what I'm talking about. It's all over the place. <laughs> so then they want to go back and take over planet 10. Um, but... The good Lectroids, who are referred to as the Black Lectroids, like, come to Earth and say, Buckaroo Banzai, if you can't stop John Warfin from getting the Overthruster and breaking into the Eighth Dimension, we will destroy a city in Russia so that Russia thinks you're going to war with them and create World War III, which will destroy the planet. Am I right? Yes, that's right. It's crazy! <laughs> And that's not even getting into like that's not even getting into like Penny or uh, I missed what you just said because I was still talking. Go ahead. Uh, I was like, I told you to take a breath because that was a fairly good summation of the plot of the movie. <laughs> it's totally nuts. 
So if that sounds good to you, and you've never seen The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, then uh, be prepared for Land of the Lost style uh, plastic masks on your supervillains, but you may enjoy the film. I think, like, if you're listening to this episode, there's a good chance that you're, uh, you know, you know, fairly interested in it or have seen the film and want to hear our takes on it. Yeah. So. Um, well, let, let's talk about Buckaroo Banzai a little bit because I mentioned Doc Savage earlier. Um, for for those, you know, because Doc Savage has only had one movie, right? Um, I know, yeah. And, you know, they've been talking about redoing a movie a bunch of times. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger was attached to a Doc Savage movie before he became governor of California. Um, that didn't happen, obviously. Um, most recently, Shane Black has, has said that he was developing a, uh, a Doc Savage movie, which at one point was going to have Dwayne Johnson, at one point was going to have Chris Hemsworth, but at this point looks like it may not happen. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, but Doc Savage was sort of like a pulp uh, serialized character from I, I think going back as far as like the 30s and then in the 60s they turned all the stories into novels um, and he was essentially a Buckaroo Banzai type character he was a doctor he was a scientist he was an adventurer he was a musician he you know uh, he, he was he was developed from an early age he was not a real superhero but he was developed to be the perfect human specimen both mentally and physically yes, essentially that's right. um and he oftentimes on his adventures had a very colorful group of characters who supported him uh and i'm not going to remember them all but like monk and ham and little john johnny little john john i think are a couple of them um so the buckaroo bonsai template i think comes like directly from doc savage and yeah. Um, to be honest, I don't mind. I don't like, I'm not calling it theft or anything like that. I, I, I think, I think it's a cool idea. You know, the, the whole Tony Stark thing, you know, genius billionaire playboy philanthropist is, is kind of half based on that too, I would imagine. Yeah, Batman, um, I guess you could say is the same as well. Yeah. So I like, and I like the idea uh, of creating stories with a hero who is not just one thing, because I think... You know, and, and I don't want to get on a soapbox or anything, but I think in today's world, a lot of times we think of ourselves as one thing. You know, I'm an engineer, I'm a doctor, I'm a taxi driver, I'm a garbage man, I'm a lawyer, whatever. Um, and, and I think it's a good idea to give kids movie heroes or comic book heroes or whatever that are not just pinned down into one thing. Uh, I like that idea. I, I like the variety of it. I like the versatility. And I, I like, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a baseball player, but I wanted to be an astronaut and I wanted to be, you know, a bunch of other things too. Um, and I think it's a, it's a good idea to keep reminding kids that, you know, that you need to be diverse uh, in your goals. So. So I, I, I like that about the movie. I You know, Buckaroo Banzai, he's cool. Yeah, he's a doctor, he's a scientist, but he's also a rocker. He he, he rocks out pretty hard. Uh, does he really rock out that hard? I like or... that scene a lot. Like, I, um... I th he's into it. <laughs> I, like, I like the music, too. Um, yeah, I think the music's good. But to like, be honest, though, like, that scene, I like, I like the music from the ending credits quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, maybe we'll maybe we'll play that maybe a little sample of that over top over top of our credits as we exit the the podcast episode yeah. today. A nice 15, 20 second thing just to stay under fair use safely. <laughs> but yeah, and, and not only is he not only is he just a musician, but he's a versatile mu musician as well. Like he plays the guitar, he plays the pocket trumpet, he plays the piano, he sings. <laughs> He's like Prince. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that scene, by the way, was shot by uh, a really, really well uh, shot scene. Um, shot by Jordan Crodenworth, uh, who shot Blade Runner. He was the cinematographer that was fired from the movie after a few weeks. So there's only a few scenes in the film that he shot, apparently. 
Um, but that's obviously one of them because it has a very Blade Runner-esque look to the nightclub, which is called, um, oh shit, uh, Artie's Artery? Is it the name <laughs> of the club that they're in? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. That's it. It's on the wall behind them. Artie's Artery. Yeah. And they call the guy Artie at the beginning of that scene where he's like, come on, I don't care who you guys are. You need to play. And they're like, you got it. So, what a cool, cool cucumber, man. Yeah. In that scene, you're introduced to Ellen Barkin's character. Yeah. You know, we mentioned earlier as uh, <laughs> the long-lost sister of Buckaroo Banzai's... <laughs> Longlost twin sister of Buckaroo Banzai's uh, wife, deceased wife. Right. Who nobody knew, because they were separated at birth, but they didn't know. They just kind of knew in their guts. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're <laughs> twins, right? Right. Mystically <laughs> connected. I love that, though. I, I think that scene's great, because I, I really enjoy... It's not a good, like, sob story, but I enjoy... Her, her giving that performance and I love that when she pulls the gun out and puts it to her temple it still has like the price tag on the trigger guard <laughs> fresh <laughs> and she's talking about how they, they wouldn't even hock her luggage and they threw her out of the Y and stuff like that like it's it's just it's it's a very funny introduction scene you know and I'm glad that they don't take it too seriously like it's not that she's really like she's suicidal but she's so, like, cartoony suicidal that you really, like, like, you're still, you're not dragged down by it emotionally. But, like, by this point, we're, you were about, like, 20, 25 minutes into the film. Oh, yeah. Scene. So it's like, you already know what you're in the mood for. So they can tackle, like, serious, like, subjects like, you know, like depression or suicide. <laughs> like, you, you, take, you, take, you take it, like, you know, um, you know, not at face value. Right. Well, Buckaroo's a doctor, so she came to the right place. Yeah, I guess so. Neurosurgeon, too, right? So if she'd aimed the gun somewhere else, yeah. I'm sure a cavalier would have known what to do. I think it's great that when when the waitress knocks her arm and accidentally sets the gun off, that every Hong Kong cavalier is carrying. <laughs> it's like a gang. <laughs> Literally, they all pull out, like, pistols and stuff. So it's it's terrific. Like that that escalated quickly. Uh, it, it, we're all over the place, and literally because of the minutia and the detail in this movie, we probably could talk about this thing for two hours. Uh, but like Scooter Lindley and his father Casper Lindley enter the scene, uh, and like in an actual like um... <laughs> Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> Where they, they literally, like, from the heavens come down and save Buckaroo Banzai with a helicopter. Um, but at the yeah. end of the movie, the kid's, like, eight years old or something, and he's got, like, a semi-automatic rifle. I know. He points <laughs> like, it at that dude. <laughs> like, he, he literally is there with the Hong Kong Cavaliers, like, saving the day in, like, the lair of the Electroids, the Yo-Yo Dine Industries thing. And, like... Well, you were talking about... You were talking about how, like, kids need role models <laughs> So. <laughs> well, I'll tell you one thing that I don't quite understand is the hierarchy of, like, the Buckaroo Banzai, like, group. Because some of them are, like, what are they, rug munchers? And some of them are blue blazers? And some of them are blue blazer regulars? And some of them are Hong Kong cavaliers? So, like, there's, like, a weird, like, like, you know, there's, like, a bunch of different levels to, like, the Banzai Institute, I guess. Because, like, when Scooter introduces himself he's a junior blue blazer and then like uh i guess earlier in the film pinky who is uh guarding the bonsai institute when john parker shows up he says that he's a blue blazer regular yeah like so like <laughs> they don't they never explain it in the movie which is fine it's just another one of those like levels of detail that kind of you know keep you interested as a viewer but like I don't know the difference between a Hong Kong Cavalier and a Blue Blazer regular. Do you? If you're a Cavalier, you get to play. You get to play in the band. Yeah, but like, is new. Well, but Pinky plays in the band, uh, and he's not a Cavalier. He's a Blue Blazer regular. 
And Jeff Goldblum is not a Hong Kong Cavalier, at least not at the beginning of the movie, but, you know, he's there too. So I don't know. Uh, you know they're not going to give a guy who doesn't know how to play an instrument an instrument just to play. Yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about, you know, that for forever, but, like, it's just one of those things about the movie. So, um, I do, I'll tell you what I do like early in the film, though, is when he drives through the eighth dimension, there's, like, a, there's, like, a real supernatural quality to, like, that world, and, like, the reflections on, like, his visor and stuff are awesome. Like vision, a little, little like space odyssey a little bit. Yeah, well, it reminds me of like uh, Death Race two thousand almost. <laughs> and uh, and then when he comes back into our world from the eighth dimension, there's like this weird goop on like the windshield, and I was like, oh look, he got a little celluloid jelly on him. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> so. Uh, can we talk? this cast a little bit yeah please do i was just about to say we haven't really talked about a lot of the the, the people in the film you know especially like the electroids you know you got um all the johns i think it's funny that their names are john all of them john's, yeah john's john big booty <laughs> played by you know christopher lloyd uh, we already mentioned john lithgow's john warfin um you got like, john big booty big booty big booty Big Boutet. And uh, a guy I'm a pretty big fan of, Vincent Chiavelli. Oh, he's the man. Yeah, he plays John O'Connor. Yep. So, um, he's very recognizable, so if, even if you don't know the name. And Dan Hedaya. Yeah. Dan Hedaya's in there as as one of the Johns. They got, they got all these weird, like, John names. Like, the, the when the Secretary of Defense is, like, distracting the guards to get them into Yo-Yo Dine late in the film. Um, he, like john's listed yeah like it's like i can't remember what the first john's name is but the second the second john's name is john smallberries smallberries yeah. <laughs> that's another thing though like uh i don't want to keep getting back to this stuff but like another weird like thing that they just kind of like throw in there that seems very convoluted but it's also kind of awesome is that they tie it into like the orson wells war of the worlds broadcast because yeah, it all happens cool. in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. <laughs> and then they talk about how, like, you know, back in 38, when when these guys arrived, um, that they hypnotized Orson Welles and made him, you know, tell that tell everybody that it was a falsehood. And, uh, and they discover that on that same day, uh, I can't remember how many, I think it was 38, Yo-Yo Dine employees applied for social security cards the very same day, all named John. <laughs> raising a couple eyebrows I guess I, I, yeah I mean it's just it's just so crazy so um, stupid like though they're like well at least you know they're trying to work in the system and then like John Lithgow like like I, I I wouldn't say I was uncomfortable but like like John Lithgow's like hate fueled like race speech towards the end of the film where he's talking about how the blacks are there to get them did you catch that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> like, he's like, the blacks are here. The blacks are coming to get us. You know, like... Really bonkers. <laughs> like, you know, because it's red electroids and black electroids. But all the black electroids are actually played by African-American actors and actresses. Um, so it would, like... I, it, like, I don't know if I was uncomfortable, but, like, at the same time, I was like, I couldn't believe what I was watching. I mean, this was 1984, but even then, like... <laughs> <laughs> what like a thinly veiled like thing um well, I mean, he's you know he's the villain so right I mean. yeah obviously and then the the black electroids in the ship uh sort of like and and uh you'll have to help me out here um i guess it's like their high council or whatever like they're in these like really tall chairs which reminded me of like am i am i getting this right the guardians from green lantern uh, well, I mean, there's Guardians from there, but I mean, I don't know necessarily, I mean, if that would be, like, my first reference to it. I mean, I kind of feel that you could see something like that maybe in, like, um, you know, the High Council and, like, Superman or something or any number of things. 
Yeah, but I was just thinking specifically because of like the the huge giant chairs that they're sitting on. It reminded me of like the Green Lantern movie. Well, I mean, maybe. There aren't going to be too many Green Lantern references on this show, so, you know, get them when we can. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, Ryan Reynolds. You can keep it. <laughs> um, some of the other um, Cavaliers, you know, you got, um, we mentioned earlier, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown's the man. Yeah. I really like him in a lot of stuff, man. I'm glad he gets to play a hero in this movie, and he gets a he gets a great line when he dies. Spoiler alert. Uh-oh. Um, I I love the fact that uh, you know, like Perfect Tommy and Reno and those guys kind of roll up, and Buckaroo's holding Rawhide, and they're all like really distraught, and like, oh man, no, not Rawhide. And he looks at him, and he's like, he's like, you boys are still on the clock. <laughs> that's right you know get on it um but yeah because i mean his career has been filled with like you know bad guy roles villain roles and 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 sometimes just despicable terrible people um you know like in shawshank redemption and uh and so it's it's nice to see him playing like a really smart intelligent good guy for a change a lot of his career honestly has been linked to a lot of science fiction and fantasy though yeah, well, certain actors, I guess, get you know gravitate towards those things. Yeah, I mean, he's a statuesque guy, so I guess it makes sense. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, he's the Kurgan, physically imposing. Yeah, love Clancy Brown. And he's the. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, most people know this, I guess, but not everyone does. He's the voice of Lex Luthor in DC's animated universe. Yes, for so, most of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a great deep voice. Uh, what about Perfect Tommy? Man, dude's got a wardrobe. <laughs> those ties, like those coats. <laughs> the the outfit he wears at the beginning. I mean, that's a really good example of like kind of like weird eighties. Like, like to be honest, I don't know if it'd be out of you know out of um, the realm possibility to see a guy dressed like that in at the shopping at like a mall back in the eighties. No, absolutely. Yeah, a, a, a white leather jacket with no shirt under it, <sighs> baby. You got a ladies and a little something for some of the dudes. You you know? you've got to really have some confidence to pull that shit off. <laughs> well, why wouldn't he? He's a cavalier. That's his he name is Perfect Tommy. Yeah. I I like his rapport with Reno. They seem to be like best buddies or something. Like um, when they the pick casual, the casual talk, like. Uh... Um, at the, uh, I guess after the conference and stuff, right? Yeah, and like when they pick up New Jersey, it it, uh, it it feels like it feels like they're sort of making fun of New Jersey's outfit together, but like you know, <laughs> <laughs> and okay, then for people who don't know, Jeff Goldblum again, he plays New Jersey, but when they make fun of his outfit, he's dressed as like a red cowboy with a and giant then, gallon oversized hat. Yeah, it's like it's like he'd be selling like it's like he's selling steaks on like a billboard outside of a restaurant. Like, like I ima- you can imagine him as like a neon light, and like you know, it'd be you know, advertise a you know, a porterhouse or something. That was a perfect description. I almost spit my orange juice out. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, come on down to New Jersey Steakhouse. <laughs> that just sounds awful. <laughs> We got we got got a twelve ounce ribeye for only thirteen ninety nine. What else? Well, uh, Ron Lacey plays the president, uh, and Ron Lacey, who most people do not know by name, plays Tote in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So he's he's the bad guy with the bald head and the black trench coat um, who goes to. Marion Crane's, uh... And the the imprint on his hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... And and apparently that's not his real voice. I heard that he he didn't think that his voice was right for the character, so they got somebody to overdub him. Um, but he, yeah, he's, uh, he's unrecognizable. You would never think it's the same dude. Yeah. And I can't remember the name of the guy who plays the secretary. Uh, the secretary of defense... It's Matt something. 
Um, but uh, but he's you know he's been around. You've seen him on a bunch of things. His little his little story at the end of the movie is uh, is is it's great, but it's so weirdly comedic. Like you know, he goes to yo-yo dine with Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers, and um, he's there to like look at a stealth bomber that yo-yo dine was supposed to develop for the government. And even though it's been, even though it's been uncovered that Yo-Yo dines a bunch of aliens that are gonna destroy the world, like he still wants his bomber. I don't care. I someone's gonna show me a bomber or something like that. Yeah. And then he ends up getting the overthruster, and then Scooter ends up getting him at the end, and you know, but like he does a lot of weird stuff. Um. And hey, am I crazy? Or is the plot of this so Iron Man 2, it's crazy? The plot of the movie, or just... Well, it's it's about a scientist who was disgraced, <laughs> who comes back, like, to, to exact his revenge on the people who disgraced him. You know, much like the, the Mickey Rourke character in Iron Man 2. The you... son of... The son of the people who disgraced him. I guess. Yeah, so you've got uh, you've got the the government, you know, like because there's this whole scene where the Secretary of Defense is talking to the president about how like the jet car needs to be taken by the government because you know they they need to have it, and Buckaroo Banzai won't give it to them, just like the Iron Man technology. I don't know, like I got a bunch of Iron Man two vibes. I don't want to get into it too much because whatever, but like. I feel like maybe uh, John Favreau was a big Buckaroo Banzai fan, and maybe subconsciously incorporated a bunch of that stuff in Iron Man too. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, a, it's like Buckaroo Banzai is basically like, you know, it's it's basically kind of like the Avengers and Iron Man too. If that's the first thing you started off with, <laughs> yeah, in the MCU. And they both have blonde girlfriends. They both are. <laughs> they're both brilliant scientists. Yeah. There's aliens with scales. Yeah. Other dimensions, multi-dimensional. Yes, it's very Marvel comics. They should resurrect Buckaroo Banzai. Well, Marvel did publish some the Buckaroo Banzai official comic book adaptation. Oh wow! Do you have that? Do you have a copy of that? They're awful. <laughs> It's only like a two-issue kind of bit thing, but in the '80s there were a number of um, films that had uh, Marvel comic adaptations, like you know a number of Bond films, the Indiana Jones comic. Yeah, um, speaking of James Bond, um, there's a ton of like James Bond qualities to the the last third of this movie, like a ton. Um, so I like I wrote down a couple of notes here. Uh, at the end of the movie, the hero, in this case Buckaroo Banzai, has to infiltrate the villain's lair to rescue the girl and save the world, which is a very James Bond thing. Uh, from an egomaniacal madman, again, a very James Bond thing. There's gadgets involved in the movie. He escapes by parachute, which at the time, Roger Moore was Bond, and we've seen Roger Moore do that in a number of films, including The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Um, the villain torturing the hero, uh, the film ending, like the the closing note of the film is essentially like them like closing the Venetian blinds, uh, signifying that you know he's about to get the girl, cool, like you know, get the girl. <laughs> um, and there's even a line uh, where like a general gives the president something and he says, "It's for your eyes only, Mister President." <laughs> So, like, I got, I got, uh, I got some James Bond vibes out of the the end of this movie too. So it's not just comic books and stuff. Yeah, Bond's good at a lot of stuff too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's for your eyes only, Mister President. Well, to be fair, that's not a term that's like a Bond exclusive, though. So. No, but like you know, in the context of all those other things, though, I think it fits. Any particular like lines of dialogue that you really like? I get the I guess the most famous one, the one that's kind of worked itself into the popular consciousness, is um, after he meets Penny Pretty, 
and that's P-R-I-D-D-Y, not pretty as in beautiful. Um, although Ellen Barkin is quite attractive. Um, yes. he, he hushes the crowd and says, don't be mean, because remember, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and, uh, and, like, that seems like a very Jeff Goldblum line. You could actually, like, in your mind, you could imagine Jeff Goldblum saying something like that. Um, but, uh, but that has kind of worked its way into the consciousness, like, in one of the Star Trek movies, I think it's the sixth one, but I'm not 100% sure, that quote is on a plaque on the USS Excelsior, uh, the, the Sulu ship, um, and so, like, it has been referenced in, in a couple other things as well, uh, so, like, that's, that's one of the, the, you know, I think the, one of the best lines in the movie. Um, I like, uh, there's a line, I want to say it's an exchange between Tommy and, uh, and Buckaroo. That's perfect Tommy, sir. Yeah, perfect Tommy and Buckaroo Banzai, um, about, uh, Mr. Wizard. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Because, like, uh, wasn't he, like, they're going to start talking about Lizardo, and he says, like, wasn't he on TV once? And, uh, Buckaroo's like, you're thinking about Mr. Wizard, um. Emil Lazard is a top wizard. Dumkoff said, "I think Reno says that." I want to say, and then Perfect Time says, "So, so was Mister Wizard." <laughs> and I like um, how they call, like I guess the Johns um, call um, call Monkey Boys. I really like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. One of the great things about the end of that is that, like, on the PA system in the Yo-Yo Dine Industries, like everything the PA guy is saying is hilarious. He's like, you know, like monkey boys have entered the facility, you know, like, <laughs> I, hang, I wrote a couple of them down, actually. Hang on. <laughs> monkey boys are feeble. Lord Wolfen is supreme. Keep your noses to the grindstone. Work, work, work. John Emdahl must die. Lord Wolfen must live. That's okay. Um, and there's also a sign on the door when the secretary is like snooping around looking for the overthruster, and it says nobody comes in here secret, and they spell it N O B U D Y yes C U M Z, and then secret is S E K R I T. So I thought that was funny. The 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 red electroids can't spell. They're actually kind of dumb. They just kind of like. They can't get anything right, it's and then yeah, when the heroes like are shooting guns in the facility, half of them are kind of like walking around like androids, like they don't know what to do. They're not even like taking cover. They're doers, all right. They're not thinkers. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the the recurring big booty joke. Um, not not just because it's big booty, but like I love the fact that everyone calls him big booty. And he keeps correcting everybody that it's Big Bootay. Tay, Tay. <laughs> so, like, when when Warfin shoots him at the end, it's because they're arguing about his name. <laughs> oh, man. Love it. Cool. Right, well, if you don't have anything else, we should wrap this up. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, do, you, do you have any final things, or... No, uh, I, I didn't actually. Um, I didn't actually discuss this with you, but um, uh, I, I think I'd like to take a quick second um, to highlight something that's not movie related each week that uh, that people can check out and enjoy. Um, and you know, I so so like I, season three of Serial just dropped, um, which is a, a non movie related podcast, um, uh, sort of a news related investigatory. Um, program and Serial was a, a huge hit the first year it came out and the story centered around uh, a, a, a case in Baltimore uh, which is why it was such a big deal where we were at the time um, but season three just dropped and they're examining the criminal justice system uh, by going through cases in the Cleveland courthouse 
and I recently just watched or listened to the first episode, and it was quite good. So if you guys have a chance and you want to check out something that's not movie related, um, you know, check out Serial. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, talk about being blindsided, though. There you go. <laughs> well, you had a couple seconds to think about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess if I'm going to suggest something, um, let's see. Uh, well, I mean, of course, uh, as of recording, this is the it's we're still in September, but Halloween is pretty close to us. Um, a lot of people, um, you probably get the impression that I'm pretty good uh, or uh, in keeping up to date on comic books. I'm a pretty big fan, if you can tell by some of the podcasts and references we kind of toss in there. Um, if I'm going to recommend something, just off the top of my head, I'm a really big fan of a comic book called Infidel. Um, it's put out by Image Comics. It just wrapped up, so there's a graphic novel um, um, on its way very shortly, but it's uh, very terrifying, like literally one of the scariest comics I've ever read um, that deals with you know, multiple themes of, of demons, you know, xenophobia, racism, and it's uh, it's amazingly stunning. Um, as I understand it, there's a movie deal and it works for it already, even though there's only been five issues um, that, th- that do wrap up the story, but uh, if you're looking for something scary this Halloween season, I'd say Infidel's the comic to go for. Nice. Yeah, see, you did fine. You didn't need any prep time. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> if, if this is going to be something we're going to be doing in the future, then I guess I'll prepare some stuff. I think, well, personally, I think that it'll help me kind of continue to, like, dip into other things that are not necessarily movie-related, because I tend to, I tend to keep focused you know, and, and just watch movies and read books about movies and things like that. Um, sure. So this will give me an opportunity to kind of push myself outside of that and, and kind of read things and experience media that's not necessarily movie related. So there's a, a sort of a selfish uh, motivation in it as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we're doing a podcast. There's no way that's altruistic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So cool. Um, so where can people find you on the Internet? As always, you can find me at filmsmash.com uh, or on Twitter at JuniorBHome. Nice. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SettingTheFrame. And, of course, we do have a Celluloid Jelly Facebook group for discussion. Uh, so you can continue the conversation there. Um, and uh, we will see you next week with – we haven't decided what we're doing yet, but uh, it will probably be a horror movie, I would imagine, since yes. October. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you then. Uh, thanks guys for joining us. Thank you, Cesar. Thanks, CJ. All right. And have a good one. Celluloid Jelly was recorded using Google Hangouts, mixed using Apple's GarageBand software, and hosted by Podbean. For any inquiries related to Celluloid Jelly, please email settingtheframe at gmail.com.